It was finished upon that cross. Yes. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. I pray everyone had a wonderful Easter. We were overjoyed to be able to gather and to sing, to be able to reflect and to rejoice in what has been given to us. Our inheritance, a living hope that is incorruptible, that is undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven's lockbox, set aside for those who have loved his appearing and for those who have put their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. And in that lockbox is placed an imperishable crown, the crown of rejoicing, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory and the crown of life. And as we saw in Revelation, we will take those crowns, our beautiful inheritance, and in worship, we will throw them. We will cast them at the feet of our Savior. And when we have cast those crowns back to our Savior, what then are we left with? What is, in fact, our inheritance? What is our living hope? Paul told the Philippians, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Our truest inheritance because of an empty tomb are not crowns as wonderful as they may be. Our inheritance is a person. It's a person. Our inheritance is Christ. This is the living hope of Easter because he is alive. He is not far from each one of us. Paul told the crowd at Athens, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And so we do. Amen. Amen. Well, it is bittersweet to be finishing up our three-part series today. Part three of our series titled The Great Trilemma, Delusional, Demonic, or Divine. And this will bring us to the end of chapter three in Mark. And if any of you have been overachievers and read ahead in chapter four, you'll know that we are heading into some of the most consequential teachings of Christ in chapter four, beginning, of course, with the parable of the sower and the seed. Then we have the parable of the mustard seed. And finally, Jesus calming the storm. All part of chapter four coming up. So as we continue, we continue our march toward Calvary in Mark's gospel. We are going to know our savior better. And if we know him better, we will love him more. That's one reason why we teach and we preach how we do. That's why we give you the historical context that allows you to put your feet into the sandals of those who were there to understand the doctrine and the theology of what is happening in these narratives. 
You say, well, pastor, that sounds a lot like head knowledge. I just want to love Jesus more in my heart. Well, consider Paul writing to the church at Philippi. He addresses that very issue. He says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. You will never find Scripture separating love of God and knowledge of God. Scripture always has these two together. Do you want to grow in your love of the Savior? Then grow in your knowledge of Him and you will grow in your love for Him. Grow in your knowledge and discernment and you will grow in your love for Him. And guess what happens when you love someone? Say when you, for your, your, your first love was birthed in your heart for your spouse. What happened? You wanted to know even more about them, didn't you? You wanted to know everything about them. Do you see this wonderful cycle that you get on? I want to love him, so I must know him. Now I know him more. I love him more. So I want to know him more. That's what growing in Christ looks like. And it's my prayer, Paul says, that your love may grow, that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment. So love and knowledge are joined at the hip. So let us be growing in both together. So in that pursuit, let's dive into our text this morning. Mark 3, 31 through 35. Then his mother and his brothers arrived. And standing outside, they sent word to him, calling him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And answering them, he said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Most merciful Heavenly Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for bringing us to such a scene that we might see the heart of our Savior, that we might behold truth, that we might be counted as your family. Teach us today, cause us to grow in knowledge of you, that we might grow in our love of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, each night we have a family reading. We have family reading and prayer time together, as I'm sure many of you do now or had growing up when you were children. And we've worked our way through various books. And right now we're reading through a condensed version of Fox's Book of Martyrs. And we read story after story after story of those who either had to give up their family for their faith or had their family reject them or often much worse. Well, one aspect these stories show us is that there is a higher reality than our natural family. And we love our families. They're precious to us and dear. God gave them specially to us. The family structure magnifies God or God's order in creation. And the list goes on. We love our biological family. But as we'll see in our text today, Jesus is about to teach a profound lesson. He's about to draw a line in the sand that would have been appalling for many to hear, especially in such a family-centric environment like ancient Israel. Well, there's much to consider here, so let's begin with our text. Mark 3, verse 31. Mark 3, verse 31. Then his mother and his brothers arrived. Stop there. 
Stop there. Quick refresher for those who may have forgotten or are just joining us in our series. So our series on the great trilemma has been wrapped around verses 20 through 35 in what is known as a Markin sandwich. You may remember that phrase. Recall what Mark does here is he will take a story or a scene and he'll jam in another story right into the middle of it, breaking it into two. So it kind of goes bread, meat, bread. And the bread is meant to go together. But Mark's cut the bread and he stuck the meat right into the middle. So the first slice of the bread was verse 20 and 21. So I'll read that, verse 21. And when his own people heard this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. Now watch how this flows together with verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. You see what Mark did there? Verse 20 and 21 and 31 and 35 are the same storyline cut in two. So as we mentioned at the beginning of our series, some pastors deal with these kind of literary speed bumps by putting the bread back together. And perhaps preaching 20 and 21 and 31 and 35 and pulling them back together as one. But of course, the problem I see with that is that that's not how Mark wrote it. So who am I to separate out the meat and the bread? We got to eat the sandwich as Mark gave it to us. And so we have in our series thus far. But I do want you to recognize this pattern in Mark's writing because Mark employs this technique frequently. Back to our text. Then he arrived. Then his mother and his brothers arrived. All right. Who are the actors here? First, we have Jesus, his mother, Mary and Jesus, his brothers. That would be James Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Find that You can find that record in Mark 6, 3 if you want to look it up. We'll look more closely at them, but when they first arrive, why do they arrive and from where? Well, we know that they've come from Nazareth. They know that they have made this 30-mile hike. And why? Well, verse 21, first piece of the bread. And when his own people heard this, they went out to take custody of him for they were saying he has lost his senses. Why was Jesus' family here? To take custody of him. They were there as they saw it to save Jesus from himself. Word is trickling back to Nazareth. This is a small town. That your kid is standing on the street corner claiming to be God and he's calling the Pharisees, our blessed teachers in the synagogues, a bunch of vipers. He's not only well and truly lost his senses, but he's going to get anyone who knows him in trouble too. Enough is enough. We're going to Capernaum to save Jesus from himself. From himself. That's the thought process going on here for the family. But if we can, let's dive for a moment into the thinking of these different family members. Did the mothers and the brothers all come with the same motivation? Well, yes and no. Let's take Mary first. Did she know who Jesus was? Yes. Did she know, at least as well as could be known on this side of the resurrection, that Jesus was the Son of God and that he would save his people from their sins? Yes, she did. She did know that. So what is her motivation here? Well, Scripture doesn't tell us, but we do know a few things. One, verse 20 above, says that the crowds were so intense that Jesus could not even eat a meal. They couldn't function. The crowd was going to wear Jesus down to the ground. Saints, when you go to visit your mom, what's the first thing she typically tries to do? Feed you. 
She tries to feed you, right? It's their way of caring for and protecting you. Did Jesus' family know about these crowds and what they were doing to Jesus? Yes, we know that they knew this. So what is Mary's motivation for being here? It's likely to protect Jesus, to protect her. This is motherly instinct 101. My baby's not even eating. Nothing under the sun, nothing new under the sun, right? So what about the brothers? Why are they there? This is a completely different motivation. We know that at this point, Jesus' half-brothers and sisters were not believers in him. Now, eventually that will change later on. But at this point, why are they here? Well, there's a couple of reasons we can infer. One is self-protection. They're watching out for their own interests. Nazareth is small. Word spreads fast. As family, you could definitely be guilty by association or at least looked at with suspicion. Walk into, the, walk into the synagogue for church and everyone is giving you the look. Condemning you because of something they heard about you or your family. Say it isn't so. Well, even greater than being socially ostracized was the real potential to bring down Roman or Jewish legal trouble or persecution. These were all realities of the day. So this is likely a motivation. Some may just be familial loyalty. They got to bail out their crazy brother again, right? Mom's concerned he's not eating and we don't need this stress on our heads. So let's go get him. It's all for his own good. So that's who's here. But just a quick note, who is not here? Who's not here? In a patriarchal society like this one, who would have led the charge to fetch a wayward son? The father, Joseph. We have no mention of him. No mention of him. Very little is said about him. It may well be that he has passed at this point. We really don't know. After Jesus' boyhood scene at the temple, we don't see Joseph. And that carries with it a bit of irony, doesn't it? Because even as a boy, Jesus had to tell his family, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And here they are trying to do the same, to stop Jesus from doing his duty. But Joseph being gone is likely another reason that the brothers are driving this ship to take Jesus by force. They were likely the men of the house. Joseph wasn't there. So we see the actors here. We know where they've come from. We know why they've come. But what comes next in our scene in verse 3? Or 31. And standing outside, they sent word to him, calling him. This is remarkable. This tells us so much. First off, we've spoken many times about the, uh, many times about the concept of the crowd in Mark, haven't we? How Mark depicts them. They're not presented as a good thing, are they? They're, in fact, they're an obstacle to ministry. They bring disorder and chaos. They mob and they press Jesus. Never has a crowd been shown in a positive light in Mark until now. Until now. We actually have two reversals happening here that we need to see. These are remarkable. See, normally the family, the intimate ones, they would be on the inside. The family would be in the house and the crowd would be on the outside. Reverse. Family's on the outside. Crowd is on the inside. The second reversal I'll point out, though we're not there in the text yet, is that the crowd is properly and earnestly and appropriately seeking to learn from Jesus here. They are there in a discipleship capacity, we see in verse 34. Not in a capacity to get a need met. 
This entire scene is in reverse of everything we have seen of crowds up until this point and everything we know about how families function up to this point. It's all on its head in this scene, which means we're about to learn something. We're about to be taught something. A statement is about to be made. The family is standing on the outside and the crowd, those formerly lost, are on the inside. I think you see where this is going. The scene calls the hearer to consider their place. You call yourself a member of the household of faith, of the family of faith. But are you on the outside? For those who feel they are irreparably on the outside of the household of faith, that they cannot come because of what they've done or who they are. See now, the lost crowd is on the inside, now sitting at Jesus' feet. It's often said that the job of a good preacher is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Well, this scene is meant to do exactly that. Mind yourself, mind yourself. If you call yourself a Christian, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Many, many, many name the name of Christ. They call themselves friends of God. They spend their Sundays with the family of God. Yet many will say to to Jesus on that day, Lord, Lord. Did we not do many wonderful things in your name? We were part of your family. We were on the inside. In the most terrifying words of all scripture, Jesus will reply, depart from me. You who work lawlessness, I never knew you. You thought you were on the inside, but you're really on the outside. And this is just a side note, but the question, do you know Jesus, as we so often hear, is really the wrong question. The question is, Does Jesus know you? Does Jesus know you? This is what we're seeing. So in this scene, it's completely reversed, isn't it? An affliction to the comfortable who place themselves in the family of God with complacency and entitlement, giving caution and warning. We also are giving comfort to the afflicted, to the sinner, that you may become and be washed white as snow. Give me the most heinous crime. That is exactly what the gospel covers. Jesus will turn away no one who comes to him. Yes, the family is on the outside and the crowd is on the inside. Back to our text. They sent word to him, calling him. Stop there. Who is the one doing the calling? His family. But who is the one actually empowered in scripture to do the calling? Mark 1 verse 20. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired servants and they followed him. Mark 2, 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Who is the caller in scripture? Christ is the caller. This Greek word, kaleo, it means so much more than just yelling out to someone. It means you're asserting a claim on that person. You hear that? Jesus called. He kaleo to his disciples in the boat. Come and follow me. I came to kaleo to call sinners to myself. I'm asserting a claim on these people. Kaleo, calling someone in this fashion. It is the right and the prerogative of Christ alone but hold the phone jesus mother and his brothers are outside and they are kaleo they're calling him they are asserting a claim over jesus don't they 
Wrong move. Wrong move. As blood family, you could be forgiven for assuming so, but you are asserting rights that you don't have. So what happens? Verse 32. This is remarkable. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Again, Mark's intent here is for you in Lanesville 2021 to see the contrast. This is what Mark is driving at here. Mark is coloring in black and white. There's never any gray in Mark's writing. Notice what the crowd is doing. They're sitting around him. What are they normally doing to Jesus? What's the crowd normally doing? They're pressing him, aren't they? They're hounding him. They're smothering him. They're trampling others to get to him. These are different people. These are being discipled. This is the real deal happening in this house right now. This crowd has seen Jesus' divinity for what it is. They've seen who he is. That he's neither delusional nor demonic, but he's divine. He's divine. Those sitting around Jesus here seem to have solved the great trilemma. And what does the crowd say to Jesus? The first word is behold. Why do you care about that? Why do you care about that? Because this word means, hey, listen up. I'm about to say something that's consequential or unusual. Pay attention. Jesus, your family is outside. That is unusual. That is a big deal. Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Well, okay. This just says that they're looking for him. And that sounds innocent enough. Only in that very inadequate language that we call English is that enough. The word for looking here is zateo. This is used a number of other times throughout Mark. And every time it's used for a person who desires to gain control over Jesus. To capture him. If they're seeking to seize him. That's what this word means. Looking for him. Zateo. It's not, hey buddy, I'm, I'm looking for you. We need to talk. No, it means that I mean to assert command over you. I'm going to seize you. I want control over you. Jesus' response to this in verse 33. Verse 33 is complex on so many levels. Mark 3, verse 33. And answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Well, if we just read this on the surface, you're kind of tempted to say, ouch, aren't you? That stings. That stings. And that's in our culture where the family unit is far less significant than it was in this day. This statement by itself with no context would have made no sense to the crowd. It would have sounded rude or even antagonistic or insulting, but it was none of these things. And as we'll see later on, this could not be further from the truth. In fact, we'll see that Jesus' love that he does have for his blood family is only going to serve to highlight his next statement. Verse 34, Mark 3, 34. And looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, behold, there that behold is again, my mother and my brothers. Do you hear the earthquake in this statement? In one foul swoop, Jesus has just redefined the boundaries. Jesus has just reclassified the hierarchy of what matters. Up until this point, blood was thickest of all. That's done. Why? 
Why is it done? What's coming for these people? What's coming for Lanesville 2021? If you're going to follow me, guess what's coming? Jesus tells us, Luke 12, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Almost everyone sitting at my feet here in this home is going to be abandoned by their families for my sake. They are even going to kill some of you for following me. Your highest loyalty is not your own blood. If you're born again, you have a new loyalty. You serve a new king. You have a new family. And it must be so. Your blood family may and will turn on you. But God has provided. God has provided. Once again, this is Mark writing to show contrast here. In this case, the spiritual with the physical. The physical family contrasted with the spiritual family, which means we must answer the question, what is most real? Or as theologians frame it, what is the real real? What is the truest truth? Most would point to the physical as being the real real, the true truth. My mother and my father, who I can see, I can touch, I can hug, I can share a meal with. My earthly family is the real real. Most would say that the physical world, the physical defines the reality of our world. The visible is the reality, not the invisible. All of us functionally believe this. We do. We may know differently in our head, but we we live as if our physical world is the true truth. What we can see, touch, feel, hug. Yes, the invisible is real. We know this, but do we prioritize its importance as ultimately supreme? Well, what does scripture say? Paul addresses this with the Ephesians. Where does Paul place the priority of the seen versus the unseen? How does Paul frame this? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul frames our entire battle, the real real, as unseen. What does Lanesville 2021 do with that? What do you do with that? The reality, the real real, is not that evil person in front of you. The truest reality is not that family member who mocks you for your faith or a government that persecutes the church. Nope. Paul says the unseen is the real real. Here is the ultimate reality. Rulers, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, the unseen. The unseen. We need to process this if we are going to truly grasp not only what Jesus is saying here, but why he's saying it. Our physical relationships can be a wonderful thing, or they can be an incredible burden. And we can take either as they come, because we know what is the ultimate reality. We are all eternal beings. 
What is eternal about you is not visible. It is not physical as we see you right now. Yes, you will be raised with an actual body. That's a different topic. But concerning the real, real, every person in here, every person listening online, let us remember, you are going to live forever. Every single person in here will live forever. Sometimes it sounds strange to actually say that, doesn't it? Doesn't it? We know it, but sometimes we don't process it this way. You're eternal. You're eternal. Wrap our heads around that if we could even fathom. And Jesus' statement in verses 33 and 34 start to make a lot more sense. Our spiritual relationship to Christ trumps all. It trumps all. Imagine being a blood relative, a blood brother of Jesus himself, like those in our scene today. How very blessed he must be, right? Jesus' own brother. Jesus says, nope. The person who has a spiritual relationship with me, the one who is in my eternal family, is far and away more blessed than my earthly brother. Those standing outside are indeed precious to me. They're precious to me. But it pales in comparison to the relationship that those in here at this house at my feet are establishing and being given right now. That's remarkable. And Jesus, ever the evangelist, he goes on to remove all doubt of what must be done to be in that relationship. Verse 35. Watch this. Verse 35. For whoever does the will of God he is my mother. He is my brother and sister and mother. Well, this verse is worthy of a sermon all by itself, but we'll break it down quickly here. For whoever does the will of God. Stop there. Stop there. Great. We have a roadmap here now, don't we? Do the will of God and I will be a brother or sister of Christ. Well, that's simple enough. Now, what do we need to know? What's the next logical question? What is the will of God? What is the will of God? I'm so glad you asked. You guys always have the best questions. Again, this is a sermon unto itself, but quickly. First off, can we know the will of God? Yes. Yes. Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. Ephesians 1, 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. Ephesians 5, 17. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Colossians 1, 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with what? With the knowledge of his will. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. How about one more? Romans 2.18. And know his will. And approve the things that are essential. Being instructed out of the law. I could go on. Are we to know the will of God? And specifically the will of God for our lives? Yes. Not only can we know it. You are expected to know it. You're expected to know it. Us being brothers and sisters in Christ in relationship with Christ depends on you knowing it, on you knowing the will of God. So what is it? 
Saints, I'm going to give you something here that you're going to want to hold on to. It will serve you very well. When we approach the topic of the will of God, we have two spheres I want us to consider. First is what God's will is. And two, what most people want to know, how does that relate to my life? What do I do with that? First, what is God's will? That sounds like a loaded question, doesn't it? Something that we would need to like swim in great theological depths to plumb and discern over lots of coffee. Thankfully, no, no. Just a reminder of our text, Mark 3.35. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Well, great. I want to be a brother or sister of Christ. So how do I do his will? Beloved, there are four areas in scripture where God specifically says, this is my will for you. Four. You might want to know these. Know these four. And we know God's will for us because he says, this is my will for you. Isn't that great? Let's not complicate life. Okay, God does not intend for his will to be a mystery for us to walk around in unease and in confusion. Four areas where God specifically says, this is my will for you. First command, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, for this is my will for you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, for this is my will for you. Second, abstain from sexual immorality, for this is my will for you. Third, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is my will for you. And fourth, submit to godly authority, for this is my will for you. People often try to remember the acronym BAGS, B-A-G-S, for this is my will for you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Abstain from sexual immorality. Give thanks in all circumstances and submit to godly authority. Well, how's this applied? This is so simple. You will never again need to be concerned that you are going to miss the will of God for your life. When you live by these four precepts in God's word, you are now by definition in the center of God's will. Because you are doing all four things that he says, this is my will for you. When you're in the center of God's will, not only are you in right relationship with Christ, but in your everyday life, in your everyday life, in your everyday decisions. So when you're in the center of God's will, one of two things is going to happen. One, God is going to sovereignly open and close doors that you have no control over. He'll make your decision and he'll guide you clearly. Or two, there's no clear guidance that emerges. No heavenly vision. Nothing. No door is opened or closed. Well, now what do you do? Because you are believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are abstaining from sexual immorality, you're giving thanks in all circumstances, and you're submitting to godly authority, you are now free to seek godly counsel and do what seems good and right. And how can you trust that that and, and how can you trust that decision? How can you trust that? Because you're believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're abstaining from sexual immorality, you're giving thanks in all circumstances, and you're submitting to godly authority. Isn't that wonderfully simple? Hopefully I saved you a trip to the pastor's office. No need to come ask me what you should do with your life or fretting about missing what God has for you. So I'm not being rude when I remind you of the acronym and I tell you to go bag it. Bags, B-A-G-S, bag it and live free. Hang on to that. It'll serve you well, save you many sleepless nights. 
So we can know and do know the will of God for our lives. And if we walk in that will, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. How encouraging. What an unmovable rock to stand on. For whoever does the will of God, which you now know what that is, he is my brother and sister and mother. And moving back into our text in closing, as we observed earlier, this was not Jesus being short or rude or insulting to his family. In fact, as we said, it is Jesus' love that he does have for his blood family that will provide such brilliant magnification of what Jesus is actually saying here. The beloved Bishop J.C. Ryle, he captures the heart of this beautifully as he pondered this statement. He is my, my brother and sister and mother. He writes, quote, How much there is in this single expression. What a rich mine of consolation it opens to all true believers. Who can conceive the depth of our Lord's love towards Mary, the mother who bore him and on whose bosom he has been nursed? Who can imagine the breadth of his love towards his brethren according to the flesh with whom the tender years of his childhood was spent. Doubtless no heart ever had within it such deep wellsprings of affection as the heart of Christ. Yet even he says of everyone who does the will of God that each is his brother and his sister and his mother. Isn't that a remarkable thought? What consolation for genuine followers of Christ? How much does he love and care for you? This is the point. This is the message. Of course he loved his dear mother Mary. She held him. She nurtured him. She stroked his head as a baby. Of course he loved his brothers. They would have played in the dirt floors together. They would have played in the fields together. And Jesus knew how to express this love for his family in complete perfection. And then he says, that's nothing. As special and as wonderful as they were and are to me, they are nothing compared to those who are joined to me in salvation. This is a remarkable statement. I have to confess, as I first read this story, I did not see floating on the surface one of the greatest statements of comfort and security for the believer in all of Scripture. I was blown away. And yet there it is. There it is. Jesus loved his mother and his brothers with an intimate, personal, and perfect love even. And it doesn't even come close to his bride. It doesn't come close. If you are in Christ this morning, you are that bride. You're that bride. He has shown you here in this text what his affection is for you. So if you ever feel like you're slipping out of his hands or that the cords are being clipped or that the ground is shifting below you, remember the words of Jesus today. As Mary, the very mother of Jesus, stood outside, as his own family stood outside, he says, no, these here are the apple of my eye. My truest affection. These are closer to me than any blood. He's talking about you. He's talking about you. When we ponder these things, we wonder how we ever doubted or feared or fretted. 
Let the entire earth be shook beneath us. But these, these are the realities. This is the real, real, the truest truth. These are the promises and the surety that we have in Christ. Unless there be any doubt, I'm happy to report that I believe this solves our trilemma. I believe it does. No man who speaks like this is delusional nor demonic. He is most certainly divine. He's neither a lunatic nor a liar. He most certainly is Lord. So let us today be those who gather at his feet on the inside of the home, not on the outside, to learn from him more that we may love him completely. Let's pray. Most merciful Heavenly Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love. Lord, from the foundation of the earth, you saw those who would be given to you, and you have not lost one. Lord, we are so blessed today to see the first fruits of that, to see those gathered around your feet. Lord, and that you have drawn the contrast for us. What is the real, real? What is the true truth? that you have done all things well, all things well. Lord, give us great comfort in these verses. Give us great comfort in these words. Lord, in a world that is shifting and changing, Lord, you've seen it all and you've secured it all. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.